Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast, episode 70, for May 24, 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Tunisia is widely seen as the democratic bright spot of the Arab Spring uprisings and a country with little history of domestic terrorism before 2011. But Tunisia has also been a leading source of manpower for global jihadist movements like the Islamic State. How did this North African country of 12 million people become such a dichotomy? Tunisians were positioned well to take advantage of this new phenomenon with ISIS, but also based off of their own historical experiences and more of the recent experiences with Ansar al-Shria, they're well-placed to you know, take on these greater roles. That was Aaron Zellin, the Richard Barrow Fellow at the Washington Institute and author of the 2020 book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. This groundbreaking book presents the first history of the Tunisian jihadist movement and challenges simplified understandings of jihadism's appeal and success. We'll speak with Aaron about Tunisia's little-known role in powering the Islamic State's rise in Iraq and Syria, the original sin of the 2011 revolution that helped unleash Tunisian jihadism, and the lessons that the United States and other countries should learn from Tunisia's experience after this. This is Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. I'm speaking today with Aaron Zellin, the Richard Barrow Fellow at the Washington Institute. Aaron is the author of the new book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. It's available for purchase now. He's also founder of the widely acclaimed and cited website jihadology.net and its podcast, Jihad Pod. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at AZellen. Aaron, welcome back to Middle East PolicyCast. Thanks for having me. So your new book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, uncovers the surprising history of Tunisian involvement in the modern global jihadist movement. What about Tunisia has made it a bright spot of democracy since the Arab Spring that makes it surprising that so many Tunisians have been involved in violent jihadism? Yeah, so unlike all the other countries pretty much that have had uprisings, whether Libya or Yemen or, as we know, Syria in particular, Tunisia is the only place that has actually transitioned to a democracy and has not been involved in any type of civil war uh, scenario. Uh, part of that is because of the fact that the military wasn't in control of the country beforehand, so there wasn't this politicized aspect to it. Um, and then also, uh, the country itself has had a robust civil society even prior to the revolution in 2011, as well as a number of political parties that ended up getting into power following the uprising and revolution in 2011 uh, that were talking to each other um, ahead of time, so they're able to communicate even if they didn't necessarily agree with each other ideologically, because the first parliament post-uprising when they're writing the constitution uh, was actually led by the Islamist party in Nahda, but the two uh, parties that were part of this coalition, um, which they called the Troika then, uh, were secular parties. Given Tunisia's history of being relatively free from domestic jihadist violence and the relatively successful democratic democratic transition since 2011, how did Tunisians become so important to the Islamic State? So one of the interesting things is that while there is very few um, violence 
violent incidents within Tunisia uh, prior to 2011. Part of this is because of uh, the nature of the Tunisian jihadi movement. Um, they weren't really involved in a lot uh, within Tunisia, but actually involved in foreign fighting abroad, whether in places like Afghanistan, Bosnia, Chechnya, Iraq, uh, helping out with things in Algeria, Somalia, Yemen, and more of a smaller scale, uh, as well as being involved in these sort of facilitation and logistics networks within Europe, uh, because there was really no space to operate within Tunisia, especially after the late 80s and early 1990s when the new president at that time, Ben Ali, uh, cracked down on the local Islamist movement in Nakta, which in turn uh, deterred the return of many Tunisian jihadis that had been in Afghanistan in the 80s to return home and instead operate within Europe. Uh, so in many ways, um, you know, one of the reasons why uh, they're so prime post-uprising to do something was that they're already really well re uh, uh, organized. It just hadn't been going on within Tunisia. And what happened in sort of the decade before uh, the, the revolution was that a number of people had been arrested, whether locally for homegrown type of incidents or trying to join up with AQIM next door in Algeria, as well as people that had been um, deported to Tunisia, whether from Europe because they're involved in some type of plot or attack, or uh, from Turkey or Syria for those that had attempted to fight uh, in Iraq against U.S. forces. Um, when Zarqawi came around. So you had sort of this meeting ground between this first generation of jihadis that really got involved in more of the 80s and 90s um, in Afghanistan and in Europe and Bosnia, um, in addition to more of the second generation that was inspired by the Iraq war, as well as some of the training that had been going on next door in Algeria with AQIM. And they're able to then come up with ideas as well as a plan essentially for what would happen if and when they got out of prison because in 2006, which was the 50th anniversary of um, the uh, uh, independence of Tunisia from uh, France, the Tunisian president time, Ben Ali uh, provided uh, sort of, uh, they let individuals from Anakta out of prison. And so the jihadis mm -hmm. thought, well, if they're being let out of prison, then maybe uh, we will soon too. And so they actually came up with a plan for about five years ahead of time. And then once they were let out um, after the revolution in this general prisoner amnesty, which I call sort of the original sin of the revolution in terms of the jihadis specifically, not necessarily uh, the political prisoners, which is totally legitimate, um, uh, but it, it allowed them to then be back out on the streets, those that were jihadis and had been involved in foreign fighting or terrorist plotting, um, uh, and then ended up creating the group Ansar al-Sharia um, uh, in around May 2011. Uh, and through that time period, uh, they essentially were allowed to openly operate and proselytize and recruit people and involved in uh, social service types of activities. Um, and as a result, uh, they're able to grow because they had this space and they weren't necessarily acting like a traditional Al-Qaeda-like group because they saw that the conditions in Tunisia were different. Um, but also sort of trying to learn the lessons of the over excessive violence for what happened um, in Iraq uh, when Zarqawi was involved in all that type of violence there. You've used a couple of terms that I think are worth uh, bearing down on for many of our American listeners. Um, you, you've, you've, in the context of Inada, you've talked about uh, it as an Islamist political party and in uh, relation to individual 
uh, foreign fighters who travel to participate with the Mujahideen or with jihads in Bosnia in the 90s or Iraq in the 2000s, or Ansar al-Shari, you've talked about uh, jihadism and jihadis. What's how should how should Americans understand the distinction between Islamism and jihadism? Islamism is a political project that's ostensibly nonviolent, whereas jihadism jihadism is a violent uh, political activism. Uh, so uh, essentially, you have like Muslim Brotherhood like groups which are Islamists, and then you have jihadists like Al Qaeda in the Islamic State. And and after the revolution of 2011, what was the relationship then between Anada, the political party, and the newly formed Ansar al-Sharia inside Tunisia? It was very complicated to say the least. Um, <laughs> uh, so, in essence, Anada was trying to learn the lessons from their own history. So, they had this light touch mm -hmm. approach with Ansar al-Sharia um, because they felt that if they cracked down upon Ansar al-Shari in the same way that the former Bin Ali regime did against them in the late 80s and early 90s. This would then lead to a radicalization because some of the members of Anakta actually ended up, um, who then fled to Europe, uh, joining up with the jihadi movement later on. Not most of them, but, you know, a, a small minority. So they felt that, you know, look what happened to us. We ended up then being in control of the government 15 to 20 years later. We don't want Al-Qaeda essentially to do this as well. Uh, so we don't want, you know, Al-Qaeda to be running Tunisia in like 2025. Uh, so for them, uh, they wanted to have sort of more of this dialogue and they felt that they could bring them within sort of the construct of this new democratic uh, society. However, Ansar al-Sharia, of course, is a jihadi group and they think that uh, democracy is against Islam because it uh, goes against God's sovereignty because humans are legislating. And therefore, they had no interest... Uh, in being involved in it or being co-opted in any way. So they were essentially able to just take advantage of Anakta's naivete as well as their own hubris and thinking they could convince jihadis to buy into the system. And I don't think that there are any like conspiracies or anything along the lines in terms of Anakta and Ansar Sharia. I just, I just think that Anakta didn't really truly realize um, what they were doing and what that would lead to. Um, and as a result, it's, it's an illustrative point that just like over suppressing a movement leads to this greater radicalization, potential mobilization. So does sort of not doing enough. There needs to be a calibration more in the middle, which, you know, kind of makes sense when you think about it. But for whatever yeah. reason, um, didn't happen, at least in the first two and a half years after the revolution until um, AST or Ansar al-Shri in Tunisia um, had been designated by the Tunisian government as a terrorist group in August 2013. Well, and, and so you, you said that after the uh, revolution, there was this great release of prisoners, which included, of course, the political prisoners, um, but also many of the individual jihadis who uh, had essentially already been radicalized, been participating in foreign uh, violence. They're released, they form uh, the nexus of this new organization, Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, but that group doesn't immediately become a uh, uh, an Al Qaeda or uh, uh, ISIS-like violent movement inside Tunisia. It focuses instead on uh, charity, conversion, uh, proselytization. What turns that group then from uh, its its seemingly non-violent original approach into becoming a uh, just another violent jihadist group? 
Well, it should be noted that Ansar al-Sharia was essentially a front group for al-Qaeda. Um, it was part of al-Qaeda's plans in the aftermath of the uprisings and sort of discussions that had been going on within al-Qaeda in the year or two prior to the many uprisings in 2011 um, as a consequence of sort of the al-Qaeda brand being sullied by what happened in Iraq um, with Zarqawi. Um, as a result, they wanted to sort of rename, and that's why you saw a number of groups after these uprisings, whether in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and even AQAP in Yemen, um, they all use this moniker Ansar al-Shariya, but, you know, within their particular context. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is that inherently this ideology is violent. So individuals involved, even if they wanted to try and have more of this uh, nonviolent fun phrasing approach, they're also involved in sort of this Hezbollah-like violence, which is essentially moral policing. Mm-hmm. Um, so people that maybe were drinking alcohol or breaking the fast during Ramadan or were praying in front of a Sufi shrine, which they consider an innovation within Islam because you're praying towards an object or a place where somebody had been buried and not just God because there's only supposed to be one uh, God. Uh, they would take actions against these people, whether injuring them or hurting them. And then they also went against sort of cultural elements, whether it's like uh, secular theater artists um, or art exhibitions. Uh, so as a result, there is this growing violence over time. Um, and then sort of the tipping point was in the aftermath of this, uh, of, of this movie called Innocence of Muslims that was released in uh, August, September 2012, um, which was very Islamophobic. Um, and as a result, uh, people in Ansar al-Shariya uh, decided to attack the U.S. embassy in Tunis. Um, uh, in the same way we saw with the attack on the consulate in Benghazi, as well as sort of this ride in front of uh, the embassy in Cairo, all around sort of the September 11th to 14th time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this led then to the Tunisian government to start rethinking what was going on in terms of this light touch approach. Of course, this really wouldn't accelerate until later when two um, secular politicians, Shukri Belaid and Mohamed Brahmi, were assassinated um, in February and July 2013. Um, and this obviously ended up then leading to the eventual designation in August 2013. But by that point, um, you sort of had this growth in this movement and this uh, larger potential space for recruitment to then go abroad and do something in Libya or Syria. So while the group locally might have been disrupted or cracked down upon, there was obviously this mobilization to be foreign fighters in Libya and more so in Syria. So many of these individuals are like, well, if I can't do this activism in Tunisia, then I'm going to go abroad. And that's also one of the reasons why you saw so many Tunisians join up with uh, groups like Jabhat al-Nusra first, which was al-Qaeda's a branch there, but then later more so with uh, the Islamic State, Syria. And and that, that foreign travel to join uh, external jihads reflects the trends that we had seen in the previous generations in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and, and, and yet it, 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 it seems like in the West, it's, it's when we think of your typical uh, Mujahideen or Bosnian fighter, or even a uh, member of Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State during the uh, territorial fights of the 2000s and 2010s, we don't necessarily think of Tunisian. So uh, how did Tunisians as individuals, but but as kind of a cohort of people, rise up to become so important to global jihadism on the battlefield? 
If you look at the movement historically, they never had these top leadership positions in the same way many like Saudis and Egyptians had, such as Bin Laden and Zawahiri, mm-hmm. or key ideologues in the movement like many Jordanian Palestinians, such as Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi or Abtad al-Filistini, um, or let alone sort of these ideologues within al-Qaeda itself, uh, like a number of Libyans like Abu Yahya al-Libi. Um, instead, the Tunisians were mainly sort of these middlemen within the organization. They're involved in facilitation and logistics, forgery of documents, and therefore they were essentially connected to everybody within the movement, whether at more of the top level or sort of the grassroots and lower levels. So it also is one of the reasons that helps explain, in addition to the fact that there was this larger cohort of Tunisians um, that were then able to get involved with um, foreign fighting in Syria. So, for example, um, when, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was still around um, in the Zarqawi days, the top um, sort of recruitment and facilitator in the network in Turkey was actually a Tunisian from around 2005 to 2007. And then from around 2007-8 or so until he was killed in a U.S. drone strike in 2015, um, there's this guy, Tarek Al-Harzi, um, who's Tunisian, who was essentially the head of foreign fighter recruitment for the Islamic State and its various predecessor named groups um, in Iraq as well as Syria. So they're highly connected in that way. So there are many linkages to this. And then through the experiences they had with Ansar al-Shariya in sort of, um, especially in relation to their Dawa efforts, essentially proselytization, as well as the social services, they're ripe to be able to be inserted into sort of this outreach with the Islamic State and the local populations, as well as the administration and the bureaucratic aspects of when they did create the actual state when they announced themselves as a renewed caliphate. So uh, Tunisians were positioned well to take advantage of uh, this uh, new phenomenon with ISIS, but also based off of their own historical experiences and more of the recent experiences with Ansar al-Shariya, they're well placed to, you know, take on these greater roles. In the uh, uh, course of the U.S. Uh, drone anti-terrorism uh, campaigns, that often is seen as uh, kind of a whack-a-mole of you, you knock off the number one or the number two or the number three guy, and someone else is promoted to fill that role. And with so many Tunisians operating at essentially the, you know, a, a, the senior non-commissioned officer level, Eventually, they're being, as as your book describes, promoted into these more senior leadership positions. So when when the whack-a-mole is happening, the Tunisians end up being the last moles. Yes. um, And, uh, you know, there are certain individuals that started out sort of at the bottom. I think uh, this one individual who's actually a French-Tunisian, Boubacar al-Hakim, he's instructive. He was one of the first foreign fighters that actually went to Iraq in 2003 um, to join up with uh, Zarqawi's network there to fight the United States. And he was just at first more of a foot soldier involved in sort of the larger fights in Fallujah that I'm sure some people possibly remember. Um, and then through that experience, he gained, um, you know, legitimacy within the movement and got connected to some more mid-level and senior level people within Al-Qaeda at, in, at Iraq at the time. Um, and then he was then asked to help recruit individuals that were in France to then come to uh, Iraq sort of in the 2004-2005 timeframe, he ended up getting arrested within Syria because there was a large facilitation network within Syria for people to get into Iraq at the time. And he then was sent back to uh, France and was in prison. And 
he actually met the two guys that were involved in the Charlie Hebdo attacks within the prison system and sort of became mentors to them in some ways. So indirectly, even though the Charlie Hebdo attack happened in 2015, um, he had some role in, in sort of guidance and advice through that prison time period in, in sort of the late aughts, mm -hmm. um, for a lack of a better term. And then he himself ended up, after his prison sentence uh, was completed within France, returned to Tunisia after the revolution in around 2011 and 12, and joined up with Ansar al-Sharia and was essentially involved in their sort of secret military wing where they had a training camp set up in Sabratha, Libya, which was on the other side of the Tunisian border, because Ansar al-Sharia worried that eventually the Tunisian government would, in fact, crack down upon them. So he was helping train people, um, uh, and he was one of the people that actually himself assassinated one of the politicians in Tunisia in 2013. From there, afterwards, he then fled uh, Tunisia and Libya to Syria in uh, early 2014, and then was inserted back in with the Islamic State, his old prior group, you know, when they had previously been called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Um, and he uh, built up sort of uh, this legitimacy within the organization, and he became uh, sort of this one of the top-level senior external operations planners, essentially planning terrorist attacks abroad outside of the war zone in Syria. So he had his hands involved in the Paris attacks in November 2015, as well as the Paris, uh, I mean, the Brussels attacks in March 2016 as well as providing guidance to what eventually happened within Tunisia too, in terms of the larger scale attacks, such as the Bardot Museum attack um, in March 2015, as well as the Seuss Beach attack uh, in June 2015. So uh, from this guy who uh, first started out sort of as this foot soldier in 2003 within um, ISIS's predecessor organization to sort of being this senior external operations leader about, uh, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years later, you saw this transformation over time. Um, and, and this happened to a number of other Tunisians within the movement as well um, in sort of the past decade or so. And your, your book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad, it contains just a wealth of on-the-ground detail, uh, individual uh, accounts and stories, um, uh, documentation. I, I, tell me a little bit about what it was like to research this book and 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 being on the ground in the region and and dealing with uh, many of the, many times individually with people who were involved. Yeah, it was uh, definitely an interesting experience. I had the opportunity in uh, 2012 and 13, in particular, to actually meet members of Antal Shria. Um, obviously, because of the fact that they're primarily nonviolent, um, it's not like you know, today, if I wanted to interview somebody in a jihadi group, it would be way too dangerous and I probably would be killed. So luckily, I had this opportunity to meet these guys and talk with them um, and hear from them. And it really helped um, add to my understanding um, from just looking at their primary sources online that they're posting and what they're doing, because it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to sort of feel it and understand it in, in a way, in a more personal level, because they allowed me to go to the mosques with them as well as being in, in sort of when they're passing out their uh, proselytization type of literature. Um, and it's interesting in hindsight because some of the things they're saying in 2012 in particular, and then tracking what then eventually happened in sort of 2014 and 15 
with people going to Syria, it's very eerie in some ways in terms of talking about how, you know, their Dao work would not just happen in Tunisia, but it would end up being this global work and uh, going abroad. And then also talking about the building of, you know, a, a new Islamic state and caliphate, which then ended up, of course, happening within the context of the jihadi movement a couple of years later. Um, so you could see a lot of linkages in that in many ways, a lot of the phenomena that people saw happening with ISIS was already happening within Tunisia with Ansar al-Sharia, just more in a nonviolent context um, in this transitioning democracy than in sort of this extremely violent and civil war context in both Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it was definitely interesting and really helped out in addition to the various primary sources I was able to collect. Um, whether they're Arabic uh, biographies and magazines from the jihadi movement from the 80s and 90s, as well as a bunch of court documentation from uh, Europe and the United States from the 90s and 2000s. And all this together, triangulating a bunch of details and information really helped piece together this movement and who these individuals were and what they were doing prior to 2011, because this is really the first book um, and uh, research project that looks at what happened uh, before the revolution. Uh, You know, many people in some ways have a general uh, understanding or vague understanding of what's happened since 2011 because we lived through it and people have been paying attention more, but there really was nothing about anything beforehand. So based off of all these sources I I was able to put together, I really was able to tell this history, which in many ways helped better understand then what happened later because without this broader history and involvement, um, even though it happened outside of Tunisia, they're primed to then take advantage of this openness um, in the immediate aftermath, at least, of 2011. Well, and I think it's also important to point out that that while your book, of course, tells the story of the Tunisian uh, involvement in, in jihad, it, it, it's it very much part of a, a wider picture and history of global jihadism uh, that needs to be understood from, from the, the middle period of the Cold War to the present. And... In addition to the fact that everyone listening to this should obviously just go buy your sons are at your service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad right now, um, they should also check out uh, your website, jihadology.net, which is just an amazing primary source uh, for scholarship and understanding of what the jihadist movement is saying to itself. Um, and I know that in, in, in recent months, you've had uh, some, some issues uh, with that website and European authorities and, and academic issues. Um, would you care to share a little bit about kind of what that process has been like and, 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 and trying to keep jihadology.net alive and useful as a scholarly uh, resource of, of primary documentation from and about uh, the global jihadist movement? Yeah, so uh, just as background, I created the website in May 2010, right when I was finishing my uh, master's at the time. Um, And the main reason why I started in the beginning was because while I was doing my master's thesis, there wasn't really a great way of getting access to the primary sources, essentially the statements, the releases, the video messages, audio messages, magazines, etc. from these groups. So I figured that, you know, if I was struggling with this, um, then maybe other graduate students were as well. Um, and through just figuring things out on my own over time, I was able to build up this archive of, of these, uh, all these documents. And now I think there are more than 15,000 pieces of primary source literature from Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, other groups and various ideologues in the movement um, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it became obviously a lot more popular and relevant than just for graduate students, you know, people 
in governments use it, um, journalists use it, humanitarian workers use it, um, law enforcement, diplomats, uh, etc. Um, however, um, because it was such uh, a great resources and the fact that uh, social media companies started taking down the content that jihadis were posting them themselves, um, people knew that it was sort of this stable place to potentially get this content mm-hmm. and obviously wouldn't want uh, bad actors to get a hold of it. The whole point was for educational purposes um, and to better understand things. But, you know, as somebody uh, that doesn't have a background in computer science or, um, you know, like uh, engineering online or anything along those lines, and the fact that it is a free project that I just do in my free time, um, you know, there wasn't any funding behind it and nor uh, do I have the technical skills to necessarily um, upgrade it so it would have sort of a password protection so it would only be uh, able to be accessed by legitimate parties. Um, and people in the UK government, you know, had been talking to me about this for a number of years, but I kept on telling them, look, I don't have money for this, A, because this is a personal project, and B, I don't have the technical skills to do it uh, myself. But after about two or three years, um, and in the aftermath of the creation of the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism, or the GIFCT, which is essentially a consortium between Microsoft, Twitter, um, uh, Google, um, and Facebook, they're able to help out with sort of the funding aspect. And then there's a, a UN organization called Tech Against Terrorism, which has uh, a team of individuals that have more of this computer science background. So together they're able to help me out and that's when we're able to come together and it actually took almost a year of processing in terms of making sure that you know i was comfortable with everything and also making sure that the website was similar to how it had been before as well as they had to create a bunch of different actual technological innovations to create the website because they had to make uh, this whole new video service essentially um and it wasn't for profit so it was it was a large process so I'm very thankful to everybody involved in that. But um, in early April uh, last year, 2019, we we're able to uh, put it out in its most recent iteration, where there is this password protection. So now only um, people that have legitimate purposes for using it um, can access it, and you know uh, all these various um, domains are whitelisted now. So it's still very much an important research uh, resource for all these people, and. I'm thankful that there is an alternative version for this instead of just this broadscape uh, sort of censorship, which unfortunately is becoming more of the norm in, in Europe in particular, um, which I don't think is good because sticking your head in the sand is not going to make this issue go away. We need to understand it. And that's why I think you know my website is so important and why people who are trying to track and document what's going on um, in other ways too, like Ayman Al-Tamimi, who's another researcher, um, who's been able to get access to sort of internal documents from the Islamic State. Um, it's important for this information to be out there because then you could see what these guys are actually saying and it's not filtered through sort of the media or even the government because they have their own biases as well as ways they want to frame things for their particular reason. But you can get sort of uh, really what's going on. And, and this is the basis of a lot of the research in my book and why it's so granular in, in many regards. Well, and if, if we could turn back one last time to Tunisia, um, I, I'd like to, to kind of dig in a little bit. You, you've, you've talked about um, before the 2011 uprising, the uh, Tunisian regime uh, had, had an over-policing, over-imprisoning issue of just throw everyone in jail and don't distinguish. And after the revolution, you talked about the original sin of the uh, newly democratic government of just letting everybody out of jail. 
Well, now the Islamic State has lost its territorial caliphate in Syria and Iraq, and, and nationals of uh, many countries are in, in the wind. Many of them are in camps or in prisons. Some of them have attempted to return home to their home countries. Repatriation is a, a challenge. How is Tunisia dealing with or not dealing with bringing its citizens back from the battlefields and uh, reintegrating them back into society that, uh, that that doesn't have room for violent jihadism? It's, uh, it's a complicated issue in Tunisia just as much as it is in Western countries because they have to you know, listen to the constituencies in the country because it is a democracy, unlike more authoritarian regimes, which can just bring people back if they wanted to, and they can do whatever they've done with them in the same way you've seen with repatriation efforts in sort of the authoritarian states in Central Asia. Um, and, and so there's not a lot of appetite for a number of activists and, and uh, people within Tunisia to bring these people back. However, um, a thousand individuals have returned of their own accord um, over the last five years or so. Um, and not every single individual is imprisoned. Um, part of this is because when these individuals have returned, Tunisian security and law enforcement have interviewed these people and they've been doing risk assessments of those that should be, um, you know, brought to trial and then in prison versus those they feel like are disillusioned. I mean, the thing that people need to remember, you know, is that not everybody that returns is still this battle-hardened, hardcore jihadist that just wants to blow something up and kill people. Um, many individuals uh, are disillusioned by their experiences, whether because of the infighting between the various jihadi groups and essentially saying, like, this is what, what I came here for, or just because of the failure of IS's project, um, and they just want to return back to their lives, and they didn't realize how bad it really was going to get, because if you're only looking at ISIS propaganda, it's very idealized and utopian, and not the reality on the ground where it's very harsh and, and, and tough living. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Um, another aspect is that um, within the prison system, they've actually uh, started a pilot program for um, sort of reintegration and rehabilitation. It's very much in the inquit phases, so it's hard to know what that could mean, but it is something to look out for in the next you know, five to 10 years and how that could work out. The problem, however, is that as before, there's still a mixing between jihadis as well as regular criminals and even those who have become disillusioned. So there's still this peer pressure element involved in the same way you see with um, the way gangs run prisons in you know, the US. Um, and as a result, um, that then makes it probably in some ways more harder to do rehabilitation reintegration just because these people can then pressure those um, that could be getting out in the future. Um, so that's one thing I think that needs to be worked on. Um, but one of the great things about Tunisia and the fact that it is this democracy and it is, has this civil society and can be a lot more dynamic because the authorities are not worried about activists overthrowing them in the same way an authoritarian country is that they're able to bring in associations and they've actually provided some funding to local associations and dealing with sort of this issue, whether on the front end in relation to prevention or on the back end when people are brought back into society. So there have been a series of workshops between, you know, uh, local officials, associations, religious leaders, psychologists, social workers in every single governorate within Tunisia between sort of the National Counterterrorism uh, Committee, which is within the presidency's office um, over the last year or so to sort of build up this uh, capacity. Because one of the things that people have learned that have studied this is that 
if these people are brought back into the community and they're still isolated, there's a greater chance that they could then relapse and join up because they feel like there's this sort of proverbial scarlet letter on them and that they're not able to, you know, get back on with their lives. Um, and instead, you need to create sort of this alternative um, uh, social network um, as well as family structure that's able to make sure that these individuals are able to get back their lives um, and not return to sort of jihadism. It's obviously a lot easier said than done, um, but it is something that Tunisia is working on. And um, they actually um, have, are, at least in the contracts that they've given out to these associations, appended to them um, this monitoring and evaluation function as well, which is really important to see what works and what doesn't, and then they can tweak it and make it better, uh, which, uh, you know, doesn't really happen in a lot of sort of these CVE-like spaces countering violent extremism, which is sort of the non-kinetic, non-law enforcement aspect of dealing with uh, sort of uh, jihadism. So uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, it's something that, you know, will be tested out and to see in many respects in the more medium to long, more, uh, long term, just because a lot of it's very new. Um, but it's, it's still important. And I think we should give Tunisia a lot of credit for implementing a lot of this and trying to do it um, beyond just sort of this kinetic military approach, which has worked in many respects in terms of beating back um, uh, the terrorism aspect of the issue within Tunisia or the law enforcement approach, which is important um, for those that could get involved in sort of plots. But uh, this broader societal approach um, on the front end and back end is, is just as important to make sure it doesn't get to more of those plotting and violent aspects of it. So Tunisia may actually have a, an opportunity or, or, or a chance to break this cycle of repeated uh, ex extremism and radicalization that's been going on for, for 40 plus years now. I do think Tunisia is in a good spot to become a potential model for many other countries. Obviously, it's unique compared to other Arab states um, and obviously doesn't have the same dynamics as in the West where it is a Muslim majority country and they're not dealing with sort of minorities that feel aggrieved for a variety of uh, reasons due to discrimination um, and sort of a ghettoization aspect in, in many European uh, areas. Um, so it, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out, but it's, uh, it's important to note that even though there have been a thousand people that have returned, you really haven't seen that many people re-engage that have just been able to go back to their communities and not been imprisoned. And the fact that the number of attacks and plots have gone down within Tunisia over the last couple of years. Of course, there still remains a cohort that are abroad, whether in theater still fighting with ISIS or imprisoned, um, you know, in northeastern Syria with the Kurds um, or the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, so that's something to worry about in terms of the potential of what that could mean in the future. Um, but in some ways, over a variety of uh, learning lessons and failures from the early part of the transition in 2011 to 13, they've been able to sort of put some of this back in Pandora's box. Um, and hopefully they'll be able to continue on and being successful in doing this, but also doing it within the framework of the rule of law and continuing to reform sort of the prison system and the judiciary and security sector so that this is a success story. Um, and I think it's, it's something important people should note because the U.S. has had uh, an important role in helping Tunisia out with this in terms of building up some capacities as well as, well as providing funding for all this, even if 
the Tunisians themselves have been the ones who have implemented this. So I think it's important um, in illustrating the strong bond that the U.S. and Tunisia have as these robust democracies now um, uh, in the heart of, uh, you know, sort of the Mediterranean. Hmm. Well, it's it's a, a great pleasure to end a conversation about the modern Middle East on such a, a potentially positive note. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great thing to hear for once. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been speaking today with Aaron Zellin, the Washington Institute's Richard Morrow Fellow and the author of the new book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad, which is available per, per, which is available for purchase now. He's also the founder of the widely acclaimed and cited website jihadology.net and its podcast, Jihad Pod. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at A. Zellin. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This has been Middle East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. And subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.